Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hey everybody, it's David Pluff. Welcome to Campaign HQ. We are getting deeper into Election 22, and today we're going to take our focus to the state of Texas. We are going to talk about a state that has a two, maybe three key House races, that has a marquee governor's race. And of course, the discussion always, particularly when we get into presidential years, is when and if Texas is going to turn blue. Because obviously, if it did with 38 electoral votes, it would fundamentally change the Electoral College. So we're going to go deep into Texas first with Evan Smith. I'm sure a lot of you know Evan. He's now the CEO of the Texas Tribune, has been covering Texas politics for decades, knows the state geographically, demographically, inside and out, knows all the candidates on the ballot exceedingly well. So we're going to talk to Evan about the governor's race, uh, about some of the key House races. But I also want to talk to Evan about that question. What is the trajectory of Texas? What would it take for Democrats to potentially turn Texas blue. And we'll go deep into demographics and geographics and electoral patterns with Evan. I think you'll learn a lot from him. And then we're going to spend some time with Nick Rathode, who is the campaign manager for Better O'Rourke. Uh, Beto was obviously a, a special political talent, really uh, caught the nation's imagination back in 2018 in his race with Ted Cruz, which was decided by less than three points. We're going to talk about the governor's race with Nick, what they're seeing on the ground, early vote has started, what we should take away from that, and how they might piece together a winning coalition. Polls in this race have been all over the place, as they are in a lot of places. Uh, they consistently have had Abbott up. Some of them have had the race narrowing, three, four, five-point lead for Abbott. Some have had the Abbott lead closer to double digits. So we'll talk to Nick about what they're seeing on the ground and what it will take in these closing days for that race to really tighten and give Democrats a chance to win the governor's race, which has eluded them for over a generation. So I hope you enjoy this episode of Campaign HQ, where we dive into all things Texas. Evan Smith, welcome to Campaign HQ. Thank you, David. Uh, grateful for the invitation. Happy to be here. No, real pleasure to, to talk to you. So a lot to talk about. I'll start with the governor's race. We're going to have Nick Rathode on uh, later, Beto's campaign manager. I suspect he has a different point of view about how this is going to turn <laughs> out than I do. Yeah, well, let's let, then why don't you tell us your point of view? Where's well, my point, of view, my, my point of view is that we have two weeks left as we sit here today talking and um in the absence of a precipitating event or a cataclysm or some other thing that changes the direction of this race, the race is probably a high single-digit race. It might creep into low doubles, but I'm sticking with my prediction from months ago that this is probably a seven- or eight-point race. Right. Um, Beto O'Rourke is undeniably, we've now seen it in two election cycles, 18 and 22. I'm conveniently forgetting that presidential race, which was kind of a hot diaper for him. Um, he has uh, demonstrated now twice that he is the most articulate, empathetic, and charismatic Democrat to stand for statewide office since Ann Richards. Mm -hmm. And also, this is a conservative state and a Republican state. And all the desires of my friends in Austin and elsewhere who are Democrats to take back control of the state notwithstanding, nothing is going to change as a result of this election cycle. So fascinating. So I was actually going to talk to you about this at the end of our discussion, but let's jump into that. So the great white whale for Democrats, whether it be a governor's race, you know, a Senate race that Beto came close to against Cruz. And of course, those 38 electoral votes, which are a backbreaker uh, in any presidential race. 
Talk about your view of that trajectory. I mean, is it going to happen at some point? If so, are we talking about like 2032, 2036? Um, you know, people got really excited back in 2020 based on a couple of, you know, erroneous polls that maybe Biden could even win Texas. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, Trump won it comfortably. So just talk about the state. I mean, you've covered it a long time. Obviously, there was periods where there's Democratic senators. You mentioned Ann Richards, kind of a generational talent. But what right. is the trajectory in Texas as you see it? The first thing to know is that Ann Richards was defeated by George W. Bush, but a few other Democrats at the statewide level were elected in 1994. That was the <laughs> last time that a Democrat was elected statewide in Texas were the other Democrats, not Ann Richards. That's 28 years ago, David. I have people working for me at the Texas Tribune who are 25, 26, 27 in important jobs who literally were not alive. Yeah. The last time a Democrat was elected statewide. They have to take my word for it. It's like Lincoln striding the earth. It's something that you read about in history books. That yeah. is how long ago it was that Democrats were elected statewide. I am always the last guy airlifted off the roof of the hotel at the end of the war on this subject of Texas turning blue. I mean, I'm the biggest skeptic about this. And the reason is I spend time with the data and I spend my time often on the road, traveling from one end of the state to the other, talking to people off Twitter about what's going to happen in the state. And the reality is the Democrats have not a demographic, but a geographic problem. Mm -hmm. In the 2020 presidential election, which you alluded to, in which Donald Trump beat Joe Biden by six points, he had beaten Hillary Clinton by nine points. Barack Obama lost to Mitt Romney in 2014 by 16 points. He lost to, in 2012, he lost to John McCain in 2008 by 12 points. Six points is actually pretty good yeah. as margins go for the Democrats. But what happened in 2020, David? In the five big urban counties, Dallas, Harris, Bear, Travis, Tarrant, Biden's margin over Trump was 912,000 votes. And what's notable in that group, because Democrats always win the big urban counties, is that no Democratic candidate for president in Texas had won Tarrant County, Fort Worth, yeah. since LBJ in 1964. Joe Biden was the first. In South Texas, along the border, where we famously now know Joe Biden did worse than Hillary Clinton, his margin over Trump was still 152,000 votes. So if you add up the big urban counties in South Texas, Biden had a margin over Trump of a million votes. They fought to a draw in the suburbs, which is not insignificant since the suburbs a yeah. minute ago used to be conservative. Deep red in Texas. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But rural Texas, Donald Trump's margin was 1.7 million votes. He didn't just get 1.7 million. That was his margin. And he ended up beating Biden by about 600,000 votes in Texas. The Democrats do not understand how to convince rural folks to vote for them. No Democrat has cracked 25, in fact, I think 24% over the last four election cycles in rural Texas. If you cannot figure out how to get the rural vote up to at least 30%, 30% probably yeah. closer to 33%, you cannot be competitive statewide. This is why Beto O'Rourke traveled to all 254 counties during the Senate race, and close to that number, I don't think he got he may have gotten to 200, but he spent a lot of time in rural communities over this governor's race to try to persuade people in those communities to to sample the Democratic brand. That is the issue. And so I am a skeptic on the idea of the state turning blue in part because until, unless and until Democrats figure out how to talk to the folks in rural communities, they're not going to ultimately be competitive statewide. Yeah, well— uh, such an important uh, message. I mean, I tend to agree with you. So let's talk about that for a minute. So, uh, you know, you mentioned uh, in both Obama races, we got walloped in Texas. But That's right. I think a really underappreciated of his strength uh, outside of Texas, in the upper Midwest, in some parts of the South, in states like Nevada, is actually in those rural and exurban areas and small town, you know, uh, communities, some of them blue collar, some of them more agricultural based still. You know, we kept the Republican margins down. You know, right. we lost counties 65, 35, 60, 40. And we've seen, you know, uh, I mean, if you look at Glenn Youngkin's race in Virginia, uh, if you look at some of Trump's margins, I mean, they're Putin-like margins. I mean, he's winning some of their Republicans are winning these counties, 80, uh, 20, 90, 10. And so that if you look at Texas, so 
you know, you've got a lot of migration into Texas. A lot of those are folks moving in the suburbs. Democrats doing better there. But we're not going to win the suburban vote ever 80-20, right? Uh, you know, it's going to be, uh, hopefully, as a Democrat, you know, my hope it grows into the 60s, mid-60s. Uh, and even with urban turnout, which is now pressured because Republicans have shown some ability to be- do better with black and brown men voters. Uh it's just a math doesn't work without figuring out a way to get back to a place where we historically were, which is, yeah, we're losing those small counties. But to your point, we're losing them 65-35, you know, not 80-20. Well, uh, and I would also and, say, and, yeah. David, I would also yeah. say that the assumption that Democrats have made over the years that they're going to take the Hispanic vote in their column and move on is being seriously challenged by the oh, Republicans. Of course. Right it's now. the biggest thing happening in American politics, right? So and, talk you know, about and, what and, you're and, seeing on the ground. Yeah, well, well, I'll tell you a second. I'll come back to that. And then an undercovered story this election cycle is that in particular, Harris County, Houston, Houston's the largest city in Texas. Harris County is 4.6 million people. It would be the 25th largest state if it were its own state, um, is actually producing, at least as the polling is suggesting it, um, a significant Republican vote to the point that the Republicans are thinking they may be able to win the county judge race. There's a young Democrat, Lena Hidalgo, who is thought of as a future star in the Democratic Party in Texas, who ran for re-election. And the race, uh, University of Houston poll yesterday, Monday, had the Republican up by two points two weeks out from the race. It's not an outlier. There's a concern among Democrats that Harris County may actually be a mess for them on Election Day this time. And if the Republicans are doing well in the urban counties— and are doing significantly better among the Hispanic vote in South Texas and are holding their own in rural Texas, it just becomes more complicated. Look, what I'm seeing, when I was down in the Rio Grande Valley about six weeks ago, there are a lot of Republican candidate signs (laughs) up and down every major thoroughfare from McAllen across uh, the Rio Grande Valley to Brownsville and Harlingen. You've got a couple of very competitive congressional races. You've got an open seat in which Monica de la Cruz, the Republican, has to be seen as favored at this point against her Democratic opponent, Michelle Viejo. And that was a seat. Let me is that is that Texas 34? That is 15. That is 15. 15. Okay. And that was the seat that Vicente Gonzalez had Uh held. And when they redrew it, he moved over to run for the old seat that was occupied by Phil Vela, which is 34. That is the Myra Flores seat currently. Mm -hmm. Myra Flores won that special election. Too much was made of a Republican winning a special election because special elections have low turnout. You can much more engineer what appears to be this earthquake victory in a special election. Everybody said, well, it's okay because the way the district was drawn, it was significantly more Biden favored based on the old configuration of the district. Vicente Gonzalez should be okay. Now people are saying it's really a a, a jump ball as to whether Gonzalez, who is the incumbent effectively, Mm -hmm. can beat Flores in that in that race. You even now have concerns that Henry Cuellar in the district, this is 28, this is a, a right. seat in Laredo where he successfully fended off a challenge from a progressive primary opponent, Jessica Cisneros. Cuellar is running against a young woman named Cassie Garcia, who of the three Republican candidates, all Latinas in these three races, she was seen as having uh, uh, probably the lowest uh, probability of succeeding. Now there's a question about whether even Cuellar could, could have a, a, a problem. Right. Um, On the ground, there is a lot of anxiety among Democrats who've been saying for years the Democratic Party is taking the Hispanic vote for granted, and uh, that chicken may be coming home to roost in this election cycle. So, again, Democrats have just cascading problems in Texas. And, you know, we may get on the other side of Election Day, David, and say, well, actually, it wasn't as bad as as the the most uh, cynical people thought it was, but it also could be as bad or worse. Right. Well, and Cuellar right now, the House, the National House prognosticators have that as a lean dem, right? But your your thought is that really is a toss up. I, right I think now. I think it's a lean dem. I think if okay. I'm looking into the future, I'm and I and I'm imagining what the headline is the day after election day. My suspicion is Cuellar ekes that out, but you know when the bottom drops out, as you well know, it really drops out, and yeah. and if. Right. The environment in the last two weeks is worse. If it worsens for Democrats, the casualties are going to include people in that lean Dem category, both at the state house level, people who didn't know they had a race until the last minute, right. and also at the congressional level. Now, look, I will also remember 
that in 2018, during the Senate race, where Beto O'Rourke and Ted Cruz ran against one another in a very different political environment, it was Trump's first midterm, not Biden's, the economy was better, a whole bunch of reasons why they're not the same. But I will remind people, Ted Cruz, who was a champion debater at Princeton, absolutely cleaned the floor with Beto in the two debates in 2018. And coming out of those two debates, with about a month left in the campaign, the carriage turned back into a pumpkin. Mm-hmm. But then in the last two weeks, the pumpkin turned back into a carriage and the race tightened. I am still looking for in the two weeks between now and Election Day, the race at the top of the ticket to tighten. Mm-hmm. Beto goes out, campaigns, barnstorms. He's his authentic self. Right. You know, that's one possible scenario here is that the race tightens. And as a consequence of that, all of these things that are on the table kind of go off the table. Right. But right. another scenario is that it all just you know, snowballs for the Democrats. Right. And um, you've had a series of polls over the last couple of days that have had the race in the uh, governor's race at margins of 11, 10, and 9. That seems a tad high to me, right. but not right. absurd. Right. So we'll have right. to see. And there's been a couple that had it closer. No, I mean, for Beto to make this, you know, super close, you know, obviously, you know, a bunch of things have to happen. Democrats have a slight turnout advantage. Somehow he keeps those rural margins in check, probably similar to what he did against Cruz. And then, you know, the Hispanic vote, you know, and, and Beto is, you know, he's a special talent, right? So if, if anybody can kind of keep this uh, together, uh, it's him. But let's talk about the Hispanic vote. I thought some of the most important journalism that happened after the 2020 election were reporters. You had them uh, from the Tribune. I, I remember reading like a New York Times and Washington Post story. Reporters actually went. They went to Miami-Dade County, too, in Florida, but they went along the border and just talked to voters. And it was fascinating because, you know, there was so many reasons. Some of this has been simmering for a while, to your point, culturally, uh, that Hispanic men in particular uh, were looking like uh, they may uh, loosen their allegiance to the Democratic Party. But a lot of it was because of the pandemic. So many small business owners, you know, some of these stories would say, I got to really like Trump. But, you know, I thought Biden was going to keep things locked down forever and I couldn't afford that. So I'm just curious. Fast forward two years. What do you mention? You were down in the valley. Like, what are you hearing from voters that is important for people who follow politics around the country to understand about this dynamic? Right. Which, uh, by, by the way, you know, in uh, you know, there's almost two thirds of voters nationally are non-college. There's a lot more non-college voters than college voters. Uh, and to me, the and I don't think this is going to happen, but I think it's important for Democrats to understand it could. If the Republicans were to get to the point where they're you know, getting, you know, George Bush-like numbers with a Hispanic vote, and maybe they're able to get, you know, 15% of, of black non-college men, that fundamentally changes American politics, you know, for a while. So, but but let, let's talk about what you're hearing yeah. from these voters. Well, I think there are two things. Uh, the first two are, uh, the first first of them is kind of two parts. Um, one is a lot of anxiety about the economy, as you correctly mm-hmm. point out. The pandemic was part of it, but it's not the only part of it. Inflation, right. gas prices, all the stuff that you're hearing around the country, all the stuff you're seeing, uh, uh, you know, rocket up to the top of the polls. What are the issues that matter most to you? The, it, it, the economy and inflation um, are, uh, are anxiety points for people in the Valley the way they are for any place else. And these are, in many cases, communities that are lower uh, socioeconomic status, uh, you know, uh, double the uninsured rate in the Valley versus the state of Texas, which itself is double the uninsured rate in the country. These are communities where a very high percentage of people live in poverty. Um, the, the economy matters. I mean, it's just very straightforward. Right. So, and, and related to that, but in that same first bucket, I would put the oil and gas um, uh, business. There are a lot of oil and gas related jobs in parts of the state with high percentages of Hispanic residents. Uh, And the communication on uh, what the president wants to do to oil and gas uh, and the threats that are perceived in those communities to the oil and gas industry have definitely loosened some reliable Democratic votes. No question about that. I think the second thing is that the, and this is not going to come as any shock to anybody, that the Hispanic community is a community of very deep faith. These are Catholic Texans. No different in some respects from any other Catholic uh, Texans, whether they're white Mm. or Hispanic. Um, Many of the culture war issues that, um, uh, you know, Democrats think that the Dobbs decision is going to make a big difference for them. Well, you know, you have a lot of pro-life Hispanics in South Texas. 
who may have voted reliably Democratic over the years, but for them, the Dobbs issue is not a reason to think about coming back into the Democratic column. You know, um, I, I think with speaking of faith, a different kind of faith, with bad faith, you've had a lot of people argue that Democrats want to bring pornography into the schools. You know, you right. had this question of books and, you know, drag queen shows at libraries and, you know, a fight over trans rights. And there's a question over whether the agenda of the Democratic Party is at odds with, you know, people who have a sound uh, a moral bearing or whether people of deep faith can find, uh, you know, any kind of kinship with the Democratic agenda with these issues. I don't know that that's really done anything in the positive sense for the Democrats in the South, uh, a part of South Texas either in those communities. I mean, I just think it's it's a confluence of things, David. It's not yeah. ordinarily one thing. It's many things. Right. Well, it's also, you know, you mentioned uh, a very important point that a lot of this community is Catholic. You know, most Hispanic voters in Texas also don't consider themselves immigrants, right? They've been there for multi-generations. Yeah. Right. You know that the Hispanic vote between Texas and Florida, Texas and California, Texas and New York, it's all different. Yeah. If you've seen one community of Hispanic voters, you've seen one community of yeah. Hispanic voters. Yeah. And the strategy politically to try to appeal to those groups really differs from place to place. And in fact, right. I would even make the argument that the uh, El Paso Democrats – Hispanic voters who are Democratic-leaning in El Paso are different even from voters in the Rio Grande Valley. El, El Paso Hispanics tend to be more traditional Democrats, whereas mm -hmm. in the Valley, you do have some folks who tend to vote a little bit more conservatively. Uh, you have elected Republicans from the Valley. You do not have elected Republicans in El Paso. In El Paso, yeah. So yeah. one place where, you know, uh, Dobbs probably could help Democrats is you mentioned Tarrant County. So let's talk about Tarrant County, you know, massive yeah. suburban county. Most uh, interesting city and county of all of the big urban cities and counties in the state. Yeah. And and went blue, as you said, uh, in 20. I, I don't think that got enough attention. A lot of other things were happening. Oh, we, in the pay, we paid attention yeah, to it. I there can you did, but nationally, yeah. I mean. I, I can tell you, you that on election on election night of 2018, when the polls closed and the early vote came in and we saw that O'Rourke was slightly ahead of Cruz in Tarrant County, which ultimately, by the way, he won. He won. O'Rourke won in that Senate race, mm -hmm. Tarrant County, by two cents of a percent two-tenths of 1% in, in 2018, the same margin that Biden wanted in 2020. We thought this is getting interesting. You know, right. Fort Worth is the 12th largest city in the country. It is the fifth largest in Texas. But over the last four years, nationally in population, it has gone from 16th to 15th to 13th to 12th. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's quite a it march. Some of the most yeah. liberal members of the legislature and some of the most conservative members of the legislature. I mean, it is really a fascinating, truly purple 50-50 place. So the question is, you mentioned its population trajectory moving very quickly. Yeah. Politically, do you expect over the next decade that Democrats increasingly can add to that margin in Tarrant County? Or do you think it's likely to stay as a 50-50 proposition? I think it's likely to stay as a 50-50 proposition yeah. because I think Fort Worth, the city, is more liberal than Tarrant County, not counting Fort Worth. Right. Um, you have what I think uh, in one of the most interesting uh, uh, mayors in the entire country in the relatively new, been in the job for about a year and change, Maddie Parker is the mayor of Fort Worth. She is really a 50% plus one Republican. She, when I, I did a debate between Maddie Parker and her Democratic challenger in the runoff of the mayor's race before it was decided in favor of Maddie Parker, and I asked her about some of the stuff that was happening at that time in the Texas legislature. She would have voted for Medicaid expansion, she said. She would have voted against permitless carry of handguns. She's the kind of Republican who could not get through a true Republican yeah. primary in Texas these days. But it's a nonpartisan office, and she is the Republican candidate. People know her. She had been a self-identified Republican before. Um, she is, in a lot of ways, where politics probably needs to go back to. Right now in Texas, we have people on either side, the burnt ends of the brisket are controlling the conversation politically. Probably 10% on the left, 10% on the right. The majority of people live in the middle, in the 80%. She is a middle of the of the pack kind of person. She is not far, far one end or far, far the other end. And so I actually think that she represents where Tarrant County probably is and where Fort right. Worth probably is temperamentally. I think it's a 50-50 county. And I think it probably stays that way. Right now, if it didn't, so uh, 
in terms of looking for silver linings for Democrats, if somehow Tarrant County over the next, you know, two or three election cycles were to drift into, oh, Democrats, you know, continue 53, 54, 55, just given yeah. the sheer size of it. I think it's, I think it's good ma- news. Yeah. It's, it's good yeah, news. Look, right. um, over the period of time from 2010 to 2020, Texas gained 4 million voters, or 4 million residents, I should say. Not all of them are voters, but 4 million. The population increased by 4 million. Of that 4 million, 88% was in the four big urban metros. Uh, Austin, uh, San Antonio, hmm. Dallas, Fort Worth, and Houston. Over the next 30 years, more than 90% of the growth in the state is going to be in the urban metros. If the urban areas are resoundingly democratic and the population growth is going to be largely in those areas, it would stand to reason that a functioning democratic party would be able to take advantage of that. I mean, you talked about the suburbs, even the suburbs, you know, north of Austin, Williamson County, south of Austin, Hayes County. Williamson County was a Trump county in 2016 by about 10 points. Mm -hmm. Biden won it narrowly by, I think, about a point or a little bit more in the last election. Hayes County was a Trump county in 2016 by about a percent, and Biden won it by double digits. Um, Even Collin and Denton County around Dallas, which have been the most reliable Republican bellwethers, were both significant double-digit wins for Trump in 2016 and got down to low or mid-single digits in 2020. The suburbs are becoming much more purple, if not in some cases like Williamson and Hayes County here and Fort Bend County outside of Houston. They're becoming blue. So if if the suburban counties are growing and the urban counties are growing, again, it would stand to reason Democrats would have a chance. The problem is that a lot of the people in those counties do not vote. The Republicans are so much better at turning out yeah. their people than the Democrats are. Well, if we're ever going to win Texas at the statewide level, much less than a presidential, it's going to require everything's got to go right. And, you know, I've seen it happen in states like Virginia, uh, for sure, uh, you know, which is now almost you know, reliably blue. Maybe that's where Arizona and Georgia are going. I think it'll it'll be a while before we know that or that could happen. But yeah, I mean, there are some assets Democrats have. So you got to maximize your vote share and turn out in places that have trended more in your favor, the counties you just talked about. But you're not going to get there with that alone. You've got to figure out a way, um, you know, to still be north of 60 percent with a Hispanic vote. And, And in these rural areas, like it's just if you look at, you know, whether it's Texas, you look at uh, Pennsylvania, uh, you look at Ohio, you look at Wisconsin, those counties are small, but when you put them together in the aggregate and you're losing them 80-20, <laughs> they turn right. into basically major urban areas in well, terms you know, of their David, The amazing thing about the influence that rural Texas has on the outcomes of statewide elections is right now rural Texas is about 3 million people out of officially 29 and a half, unofficially 30 million in the state of Texas. It's about 10% of the population. It is the lowest percentage of the population of Texas represented by rural in the history of the state, and it will never be higher than it is now. It is only going to be a lower percentage. But despite that, rural Texas still decides the outcomes of of elections. It has so much more power, even today, than we fully appreciate. And again, until Democrats figure out how to crack that code, I just think this question of Texas turning blue is fan fiction. I really do. Well, you got to crack all the codes. That's the thing. And I think it's possible, but uh, I think we should not underestimate the, the challenge. So uh, the rest of the constitutional offices, you assume, are going to go heavily red. Is that right? I, I, I do, but I want to I offer a caveat. You know, not yeah. every poll has been consistent on this, but my, my gut tells me the following. The governor's race is going to be a wider margin than the races below governor because while there are not Beto Dan Patrick voters or Beto Ken Paxton voters, mm-hmm. there most assuredly are Greg Abbott, Mike Collier voters. Mike Collier's mm-hmm. running against Dan Patrick for lieutenant governor. Or, right. or um, Greg Abbott, Rochelle Garza voters. Rochelle Garza is the Democrat running against Ken Paxton for attorney general. We know some of their names. There are Republican office holders who have said, I'm not voting for Dan Patrick. I'm voting for Mike Collier. Now, they're people who are going to vote for Greg Abbott. So if you assume that there's a fall off, that there are Abbott voters who then switch over and vote Democratic, because we don't have straight ticket voting any longer in Texas. It's not as easy for Republicans to vote for Abbott and just hold their nose and go all the way down the, the ballot. They've got to go literally race by race. Um, I think the margins are going to be narrower. In 20. 18, the Abbott margin in the governor's race was 13. The margin in the lieutenant governor's race was five. In the AG's race, it was less than four. And in the U.S. Senate race, Cruz and O'Rourke, it was less than three. If, in fact, the governor's race is eight or nine, 
then probably the lieutenant governor's race, the AG's race, are around five. If the governor's race gets down to five, interesting. If right. it gets down to four or three, it gets really interesting. Right. Not so all the could... polls, but most of the polls have shown a significant fall off. And um, I'm expecting that there'll be probably a five-point difference between the top of the ticket races and some of those other ones. Um, a Republican consultant who you know, but who I will not name, referred to <laughs> Patrick and Paxton to me recently as the problematic pair. Mm -hmm. And this individual said to me, um, I expect that the problematic pair will run about five points or four points or three points, whatever it was, behind I forget what number he cited. Maybe he didn't even cite a number, but that was my assumption yeah. behind the governor. And I think that's probably likely to be the case. He who shall not be named. Yes. He who shall not so, be named. So why is Abbott uh, so strong electorally heading into this election compared to some of these other Republican candidates? Well, I think it's a couple things. I think that the governor is, um, you know, but, but let me say this. Bo, I don't think newspaper, newspaper endorsements matter. I'm opposed to newspaper endorsements. I think the newspaper should stop endorsing. They don't listen to me on this or anything else, right? Um, but the Dallas Morning News and the Fort Worth Star-Telegram both endorsed Abbott in this race. The Houston Chronicle, San Antonio Express, Austin Statesman all endorsed Beto. In both the Dallas and the Fort Worth endorsements was essentially the same sentence. Texas is a prosperous state. It's the economy, stupid. That's what it is. The Texas economy has been stronger over the years that not only Greg Abbott has been governor, but Rick Perry was governor than almost any other state. We're not exactly recession-proof, but almost. We are you know, a job-creating state. We're a business-attracting state. We pickpocket businesses from other states with low taxes and predictable regulation and tort reform. Now, there's arguments against that. I mean, I understand that. Right. But on the ground— what people hear and see and what Dallas and Fort Worth and their endorsements are saying is Greg Abbott has been a good governor for the business community, for the economy of Texas, for creating the kind of environment in which people want to live. Now, they both acknowledge in the editorials and the endorsements, there are these other things, but they're prioritizing to me, prioritizing that. I think what Greg Abbott has going for him is that. Mm -hmm. Now, right. you know, and the abortion bill, which had no exceptions for rape and incest, and permitless carry of handguns after mass shootings in 2019 in Odessa and in El Paso, but before the mass shooting in Uvalde. Um, and Texas now has more than 24% of its population uninsured, double the national average, and we refuse to expand Medicaid. And, 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 but the economy is great, and but the business environment is great. And so for a lot of people, they're willing to go, yeah, we're not necessarily crazy about this other stuff, right. but X, Y, Z. Um, and, you know, people are wondering why the Beto Cruz race was so close, but the Abbott-Beto race is not. The reason is that Abbott is not Cruz, and this Beto is not that Beto. I mean, to me, it seems fairly simple. That Beto caught everybody off guard. This Beto has not. Um, and Cruz is more objectionable to some people than Abbott. Right. And it was a great democratic environment. So, And this national. is a very different environment. Yeah. The president's party almost always does poorly in the midterm like the one that we're in. Trump's party did poorly in that midterm, the economic environment, and all the other reasons we've talked about. Well, Evan, you've really taken us to school on the state of Texas, which I appreciate. Last question for you is not about 22. It's about 24. Yeah. Uh, you, you, I'm sure, have had to become a, a PhD student uh, on all things Ted Cruz. Yes. Um, uh, by the way, he got a lot of grief. I guess he got booed at the Yankees game. That, that didn't, whatever. I don't care about that. But there was this video of him like applauding and nodding when Jose Otuve got struck out, <laughs> which uh, did bother me as a baseball fan. But leave that aside. Yeah. If Trump doesn't run... Do you expect that Cruz will run for president? I think that you're looking at a real possibility of either Ted Cruz or Greg Abbott or both running for president. I both mean, I could think be running. Right, I, right. I think definitely both of them are looking at a race. I think that there are signs that you can intuit or interpret in decisions they've made. Um, I don't know which was a worse place for Cruz to spend his time in the last couple of hours, last uh, day or two, the uh, Yankee Stadium or The View. Um, but obviously, <laughs> yeah. he's decided he's going to spend his time in the lion's mouth uh, here in the run-up to 24. But I think if you look at what Abbott has done, you'd be hard-pressed not to think that Abbott is considering very seriously running on that very same record of the most prosperous state, all that. Um, 
And all the things you mentioned that potentially are vulnerabilities in the general election would be calling cards for him in a primary. Yeah, I, you know, I just abortion, have abortion no, guns. I, yeah, yeah. I, I yeah. have no idea what either one is thinking. I'm not in the kitchen cabinet, needless to say, of either one. And so there may be conversations going on I'm not privy to. But as I've been observing Texas politics for more than 30 years, my very strong sense is that both of them are looking at the possibility of a, of a race. The difference between Abbott and Cruz is that Abbott is not as well known around the country and Cruz is exceptionally well known. Right. Whether that's a strength or a weakness, I don't know. But, you know, the, the bigger issue for me in 24 is less who's on the ballot and whether anybody's going to accept the results of any election ever again. We are yeah. in a state, like a lot of other states, where a number of people who are not only on the ballot this time but are also likely to get elected to office have refused to acknowledge that yeah. the election in 2020 was legitimate. Yeah. We have election administrators being hounded out of office, not just in Democratic counties, but in Republican counties. And so it's a mess, David. It is a yes. mess. I have never felt worse about the state of things than I do oh, right for, now. For sure. No, we're, we're on a knife's edge. and uh, We are. Uh, we are just on a knife's edge. It's, uh, it's, it's scary, scary times. No, I think, I think there's a healthy number of Republican primary voters who, who have asked the question, would you prefer to live in a country where a Democrat is in charge because they won the election, or would you be comfortable basically uh, with a system where Republicans decide who wins elections? Like, I think it's, you know, I'm not sure who wins that question, but it's yeah. it's scary to me. You and uh, I are both old enough to remember Pat Moynihan's famous line about how we're all entitled to our own opinions, but we're not entitled to our yeah. own facts. Turns out to be a jump ball these yeah. days. No and, question. And more, no more question. than anything else, as a journalist who is committed to searching for the truth and telling people what we find, not your truth or my truth, but the truth, I am as concerned as I've ever been about yeah. this notion of reality as a subjective construct. And if the outcome of something is something you don't like, you just deny that it was the outcome. That's not how this works. It's just not. Yeah. It's it's no, you're right. And and I think there's there's technology and data and other things that are accelerating that uh, in a way that uh, is going to make it even more challenging. Uh, last question, then about 24. Yeah. If Trump runs, knowing that knowing Abbott and Cruz so well, do you think either of them might consider jumping in that or they stay out of Trump's? Running? I suspect they'd stay out of it. By the way, I don't think that if Trump is the candidate of the Republican Party, that the Republicans have the best chance of winning that election. That is right. me saying it and everybody else on earth saying it. Yeah, right. No. Um, in other words, if the if the Republicans had Abbott or Cruz on the ticket, they might in fact have a better chance of of winning any election, not just against the, the current president, but if he declined to run a second time, any Democrat. Right. Um, well, yeah. You, you know, I mean, I, I think Trumpism without Trump is in some ways the best route to success for the Republicans in 24. Um, and my intuitive sense is that Trump would win Texas for sure if he were the candidate for president, regardless of his problems or baggage or what have you. Um, but that either Cruz or Abbott would be stronger candidates, not just here, but elsewhere. But there are a whole bunch of Republicans you could put in that same category. Yeah, no. But it's I, think they would was, not, I think they would not run against Trump. I do not think they would run against Trump. Right. That, and I think that is, is such an important question, which is if he does run, because I think he's vulnerable in a Republican primary, uh, potentially, even with all his strengths. Uh, who ultimately decides, is it DeSantis, is it others? But, you know, I don't know if you saw, there was this focus group, I think MSNBC did recently with Pennsylvania Republicans. And, you know, to the point about democracy, it was, uh, frightening doesn't describe it. I mean, basically, universally, the election was right. stolen. They believe all the myths. They, they'll talk about voting yeah. machines and things. But at the end, the, the moderator asked about the, the next election. And, you know, a bunch of those Republicans said they weren't going to be for Trump. Of course, their reason was, we love him. But he's not treated fairly. So we need somebody else who, you know, has basically a clean slate. And I do think yeah. that's going to be an important question. If to, and he's got to know that, uh, which is there's a bunch of people who say, well, be, Trump should be on Mount Rushmore. He's the greatest president ever, but he won't be given a fair shake. So we got to basically, to your point, pick somebody who's got all the Trumpism without the name. And there are uh, plenty of choices. And yeah. as far as that goes, there are plenty yeah. of choices for the Republicans to choose. And it really comes down to two things. Are they prepared to go that way? And is he prepared to stand down? Yeah, right. Is he prepared to stand down? So fast. Well, listen, Evan, real a treat to talk to you. I think Thanks, you've David. done a great service to everybody explaining where Texas is today and, and where it may be heading in the future. And hang in there these last, uh, you know, last chunk of the election. Same. Talk to you soon. Thanks so much. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Nick Raythode, welcome to Campaign HQ. Uh, great to be here, David. Great to, great to be uh, hearing your voice again as well. <laughs> Yeah. Well, as I said in the introduction, Nick is a former colleague of mine in the Obama White House, did such a great job. And now in that post, now he's down in Texas trying to help uh, save uh, people of Texas and, and democracy and all sorts of things uh, <laughs> as the campaign manager for Better or Work. So, Nick, I want to start with um, the public polls in your race have it very close, right? Uh, tightening, if anything, while we've seen some other races perhaps move a little bit more in the Republican direction. What are you guys seeing in your own data? I mean, is it consistent with what you're seeing publicly? Are you guys, kind of guys both are in the mid-40s and it's going to come down to those last sliver of undecideds and, and whoever wins the turnout war? Just uh, take the microphone and tell us where you guys are. Yeah. Well, thank you, David. Thanks for having me on. And yeah, you know, the polls, polling generally, as you know, um, over the last couple of cycles has not been particularly great. And in Texas, <laughs> it's really, really hard. Um, yeah. And so... You know, the, the polling, we had one that came out yesterday, uh, a beacon poll, public poll that had us down or actually within the margin of error. Uh, and then another one that came out today that that um, had us down by nine. So the mm -hmm. polls are really all over the place. You know, where we think we're at um, is right there around four or five percent. Um, and we're moving in the right right direction as we close in uh, here at the end. Um you know, the other thing, you know, I'll just mention about Texas is that the numbers are often wrong because more than a blue state or a red state, it's a non-voting state. Um, right. And so when people are measuring a quote unquote likely voter, it's really hard to define what that is. If, um, you know, 7 million people in 2020 who are eligible to vote in Texas just didn't. Uh, and so the, the voting is sporadic here um, and really, really difficult to measure. Even Biden's number in 2020, they were off by about 700,000 votes um, from their win number. So mm -hmm. we spent a lot of time uh, and effort, especially early on in the campaign, investing in our own data and analytics program that really, you know, the, the goal of that was to, you know, uh, sort of identify what the right voting universe is and pair that with the right message and get that at scale. Uh, and, you know, which is what I'm particularly excited about that we've built in the campaign is that we we now have a real good understanding of what that voting universe is, how to turn those people out, and we will unleash our organizing army to, to do just that. Well, Nick, that's a great overview of uh, some of the complexities of Texas. So let's dig into some of the complexities of Texas. Let's start with turnout. So, you know, Better or Work famously in 18 generated such enthusiasm in his race against Ted Cruz. And, and I think one thing Democrats have seen really over the last three cycles is Republicans consistently get strong turnout in most places. So how do you view that? I mean, uh, you know, are you seeing that extra Beto sauce in Texas that may, uh, again, upset the models in terms of that likely voting universe? What are you seeing on the Republican side? Yeah, it's a really good question. So I think on the Republican start side, I'll start there. It's still Texas. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, and we can just start there. And, and it's really hard, you know, while Democratic vote share has increased over the years, so has Republicans. And so, you know, another reason that we invested in data and analytics in the in the in the campaign was because it's really hard to assess kind of what the ceiling is for Republican voters. And, um, you know, they they turned out in mass for Trump. But the one thing this year, I just you know, there isn't as much enthusiasm, I think, for Abbott. Um, you know, mm -hmm. Abbott sat out of the uh, Republican convention because he was afraid to get booed. The last Trump rally he was at, he got booed. Uh, and so there is a little bit of a softening in terms of the base support there for him. Meanwhile, 
on our side, um, enthusiasm has been pretty incredible. I mean, you know, that that organizing operation that we set up in 2018 with Beto is still there and we've built on it. We are now at about 100,000 volunteers, um, which I think is the biggest uh, organizing operation in, in American history for a statewide race. So that so the volunteer excitement is really strong. The crowds we're getting, even in these deeply blood red counties, People are coming out to hear what Beto has to say, hear what our message is, because again, I just think people are tired of Abbott and the Republican leadership here. And so that's exciting. We also on the donor, small donor side, um, the last two reports, we've had over 500,000 individual donors that have contributed into the campaign. The majority of those are school teachers. Um, And so we have great grassroots support on the money side. Um, great turnout happening on the um, event side and, and the crowds are just as big as they were, if not bigger in 20, than 2018. And our organizing army is larger than we had in 2018. Now, 100,000 people. That's amazing. That's a, that is a presidential level effort. Uh, yes. Maybe even <laughs> exceeds that. It's, it's extraordinary. You mentioned the deeply red counties where Beto is getting good turnout at events. Talk about your guys' strategy there, what you're seeing. Uh, you know, Part of how you win a state like Texas is... You're going to lose most of the counties, but you want to lose them by as small a margin as possible. So whether it's, you know, whether it's abortion and, and post-obs, whether it's um, gun control, where, you know, are you seeing some signs of positive movement in those red counties where you might be able to keep Abbott's win margin below where he'd like it to be? Yeah, that's the whole theory. I mean, you know, again, the the energy amongst the base in Texas is really strong. And I think... Dobbs, Uvalde, um, some of those things that have occurred over the course of the cycle has really further galvanized and um, consolidated our base support. Uh, and that, you know, is particularly strong in, in urban in the urban areas. So, you know, Houston, Dallas, San Antonio, Austin, those places, you know, again, where we have seen really a surges in, in Republican support is in those rural areas. And so the idea and we spent most of the summer in rural Texas and West Texas and East Texas and other parts of the state um, is to cut into those margins. And so if we can cut even a little bit into those rural areas um, and really surge our base, we think that that's the key to victory. Yeah. And that's what we've been focused on. It, we, it's always worth reminding that uh, we simply cannot win any swing state. And, and you know, I'd say Texas is still considered a lean Republican state. So any lean Republican state, much less a swing state without getting those margins back to a manageable place in the counties we're going to lose. So you mentioned uh, West Texas. You know, one of the things that happened in 2020 along the border in the southern part of the state, West Texas, is Trump was able to generate much stronger support with Latino voters, particularly men. Are you seeing signs uh, that that perhaps that continues? Are you guys going to get those margins back to where we historically need them to be? What are you seeing? I know that must be a fierce battlefront uh, in is. your race. Yeah. <laughs> It truly is. Um, you know, right now, in we, we believe that the electorate, Latino electorate in Texas will be about 22% of the electorate, and we need about 60% of that um, mm-hmm. to win. And so we believe we're there, uh, if not uh, performing a little bit better than than what, what that model suggests, um, you know, we, where we need to be at. But I'll say this, um, we got to be careful as Democrats about just, first of all, treating Latinos as a monolith. You know, the the Latino community that people have been focused on down in the Rio Grande Valley is different. They're multi-generational. They're four or five generations in. And so those people have a different, um, you know, you have to to talk to those people differently because, um, you know, their issues are really, really more aligned with um, maybe a a farmer in West Texas. And so, you know, they care about schools. They care about the economy, jobs, those sorts of things, and less so about immigration. And I think right. de- Democrats' tendence, tendency has been to go in and just talk to every Latino about um, immigration reform and um, you know call people Latinx. I, I can tell you, if you go down to South Texas, people will think you're, you're from a different planet if you call them right. Latinx. And so we really have to be careful about how we're engaging. And then the Republicans have spent, you know, to their credit, considerable amount of time and resources investing uh, in, in communicating to those uh, communities and uh, running really strong candidates, uh, building party and other infrastructure in South Texas and 
other parts of the state that, you know, I, I think national Democrats, national donors need to pay attention to and meet with, with uh, you know, with, with, with the same type, if not more investment. Well, Nick, we're here to talk about your Riz, but I think you just are providing a public service for uh, the party generally uh, <laughs> with some of your comments. No, I mean, I think we just have to understand that there's a heck of a lot more non-college voters in America than college voters. And if the Republicans are able to add to their non-college vote with black and brown uh, men in particular, but obviously they're targeting women as well, it's almost going to make make it mathematically impossible for us to win most elections. People just have to understand that, <laughs> you know, That's the college true. vote only gets you so far and we should maximize it. But let's talk about that. Obviously, we've seen in Texas, um, in, the, in the suburban areas of Texas, some counties that nobody ever thought would go blue have gone blue. Uh, with some, you know, accelerated pace, really. What are you guys seeing in the suburban vote? That You mentioned you got to get 60% of that 22% of the Latino vote to win. Obviously, you probably have some pretty significant vote share targets in the suburban areas. You know, kind of what are you seeing in the suburbs? What's driving that? I'm curious, too. Obviously, we know abortion is a big driver. Mm -hmm. uh, we know general Republican intolerance. Nobody's a better example of that than Abbott. But you know, a lot of people in the suburbs obviously concerned about they're all driving. Uh, obviously, that tends to be uh, where most voters from a percentage standpoint actually are in the market at 401ks. That's been challenged. So just talk about some of those cross pressures you're seeing with those suburban voters. Yeah. You know, well, you know, Texas has been growing significantly in population. I, you know, since 2010, we've added about four million new people into the state. Um, and this year, you know, uh, we've we've registered about a million new people. So that population growth has been significant. And about 95% of that population growth um, has been in the cities and suburbs mm -hmm. and really kind of declining in, in rural areas. Also, that, that growth has been significant in communities of color in these urban and suburban um, and exurban areas. And so there is a significant amount of focus that we want to place there. Um, especially with, you know, some of these suburban, you know, the quote unquote suburban white women, you know, those 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 um, communities tend to, you know, tend to vote sporadically and, 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 and have different issues that they're focused on. And a lot of it is around education. Uh, abortion in particular this time we're seeing is, is something even with independent and Republican women. Are, is something that is moving them in our direction. Uh, you know, this is circumstantial, but when we go and do events in these suburban areas, quietly these Republican women will be coming up to us and being like, <laughs> my husband's not here. I'm not telling my <laughs> husband I'm, I'm voting for Beto, but I'm going to vote for Beto because they've just gone way too extreme in Texas on abortion. And so there is a lot of that popping uh, we see in, in, in suburban areas. I can also say, you know, and this is surprising when we're talking about abortion and guns as issues that are galvanizing suburban voters in Texas. But guns is another one. In, in the wake of Uvalde, um, right. there there is a real sense um, around safety in schools. And what Abbott has done has really just been non, non-existent on those issues. And I think that people are fed up. I think sensible people understand that we need to protect our kids. And we need, you know, some reforms, uh, you know, uh, raising the age to 18 for guns, um, background checks, universal background checks. Those sorts of things are common sense things that especially people and women in the suburbs are, are also um, focused on right now. And those measures you mentioned are probably, you know, what, supported statewide, even in a state like Texas by 60, 65, 70, right? That's I mean, right. There's a majority... So, so much of the economic coverage of, of this election nationally is around inflation and how much uh, is President Biden responsible for that? You know, how much is that going to hurt Democrats? Now, you have an incumbent in Abbott. Incumbents tend to be responsible for the economy where they preside. So what kind of economic case are you guys able to make against Abbott? Uh, and, and what do you see that's been successful? We've been referring to Abbott's, um, we, we, we say he is the highest driver of inflation in Texas, which is true. Mm -hmm. And we're calling it the Abbott tax because on a number of different fronts, he has been the biggest driver of inflation in Texas. So first, um, property taxes have skyrocketed in Texas under his watch. Um, it is really expensive, especially in rural areas for, for rural broadband and, and to be able to access that. Um, as you know, and probably have heard, the grid failed in Texas um, yeah. and energy prices for people uh, have skyrocketed here. 
And then his border stunts um, have also sort of uh, clogged up supply chains coming in from Texas and increased the price of goods in Texas and, and groceries in Texas. So the combination of those things truly we can place around him. Uh, and, 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 and again, it's this Abbott tax that the, that, that the people of Texas are, are having to pay. You know, it's really hard uh, because the macro po political landscape um, has been defining it as, as you know, th these are national Demo Democrats that are driving this. It's Biden. It's, you know, that sort of thing. So we're, those, those crosswinds are pretty difficult, but we're doing everything we can to prosecute the case against Abbott and, and, and really put that around him. Right, right. I'm curious, um, I'm talking to Nick, uh, we're an audio only show, but he's got a map of Texas behind him. Uh, it's a big map. So I'm just curious, you know, sort of talk to people as a campaign manager. Obviously, you know, you've got polling, you've got your own data. You talked about the data and analytics team, you know, that you built, you've got staff out there. But how do you kind of keep that mental model in your head every day? You know, some of that's around where Beto and surrogates go. Some of that's looking at the early vote numbers. Some of that's where you're placing lawyers. Like, just talk about <laughs> how you you keep all that in your head, because it is basically a country into itself. That's right. People forget how big Texas is. It's it's 20 media markets. Um, Harris County alone, the population is larger than 20 some states. Um 40 electoral votes and it is massive and demographically it's really really complicated as well like you said there's 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 significant rural areas there's these huge urban and and suburban areas and then you have all of the counties down on the border as well which is which is also a unique set of um communities and so you know trying to figure out all of that is very difficult um and people forget how expensive it is here to run um it is it is like a country abbott started with 50 million dollars in the bank and you know um and and he's probably going to spend upwards of 100 million on this race so you know all of those things are very com complicated and complex things to to manage uh and so you know we do we have spent a lot of time like i said in those rural areas trying to um especially early on um and now we're going to be in in a lot of the urban areas we started the race down at the border um and continue to focus our energy and time there um we are up uh in all 20 media markets now and and on on a number of different platforms uh broadcast radio all of those sorts of things. And again, we've really tried to focus in our data and analytics to hone in on who those voters are that we need. We've tested over the course of the cycle um, different treatments. So do these communities react better to letter writing or door knocking? What are the what are, what are these messages that will inspire people to get out? And we've, we've, we're now applying all of those learnings over the course of the year and feeding our 100,000 100, organizing arm, our army that information and tactically and strategically deploying them at the doors to get the right people out. And again, using the right messaging and the right treatments to, to be able to do that. So we're, we're doing everything we can to be as surgical and tactical and efficient with those dollars that, that, that we have um, to, to, to get us to a victory in, in November. So you mentioned... Um you know, a surgical approach that's geographic, but it's also, as you mentioned, you know, is it letter writing? Is it door knocking? Um, and it's also communication, right? You mentioned broadcast radio. Uh, I presume, you know, the majority of your money, though, is is being spent on digital platforms. You've been in politics a while. Sort of tell us how 22 is different than 20 or 18 or 16 in terms of how you think about these platforms and and the best way to reach voters. Yeah, one of the things that you know I've I particularly noticed, and, and I'm sure you've seen this as well, um, just the amount of partisanship. I mean, we are in, a, in yeah. an incredibly hyperpartisan environment right now, and so you know the 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 persuadable voters are becoming less and less prominent. Um, and you know, fortunately, the extremism by Republicans and you know things like Dobbs and abortion yeah. and some of these other issues have allowed an opening there. Um, but one thing I've seen in particular over the course of the cycle and over the course of years is just the, the tribalism that's occurring, the hyperpartisanship. And so, you know, there is an important um, uh, element into that, into, into thinking about base expansion and making sure our people 
are shored up and coming out. And then because of the models that we've been building, we have developed this persuasion model, uh, the first ever in Texas, that that we are also leaning into to try to peel off some of those Republicans. Um, but again, it's, it, it is difficult because of the hyper-partisan environment that we're in um, to, 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 to really fully understand how to do that. So that's something in particular I've noticed. Right. And is in, in terms of that uh, persuasion universe that you've built a model for, obviously you're reaching them in every way you can. Uh, but it, it, what is there, is there a particular social media platform that they over index on in terms of where they're living? Yeah. So, you know, it, a lot, it's interesting, you know, we have decided to invest pretty heavily on, on, you know, things like YouTube or these yeah. other digital platforms, YouTube TV or uh, places where, you, you know, a, a lot of people are moving. Um, and then on social media, it's still really, you know, kind of Facebook, uh, Twitter, right. some of those places are, are, are where some voters are. Uh, but I think, um, you know, and, and uh, we're still putting money in broadcast and a you know, significant amount of money uh, into broadcast. But I do think that there is a trend moving towards digital and some of these other digital television platforms that, um, you know, where, where we're putting significant money as well. So people are moving in different places. They're consuming information in different ways. Um, and we're trying to adapt our, our campaign to be able to speak to those people where they're at. Yeah, well, a lot of people will be watching YouTube TV in Texas as my Phillies defeat the Astros, hopefully. But, uh, That's right. <laughs> but we'll see. Uh, probably not. not Astros, are, uh, <laughs> Astros are a clear favorite. Um, and how about TikTok? I mean, obviously, you're very dependent yeah. on, you know, huge turnout amongst younger voters. What's, your, what's been your strategy there? Yeah, so Beto, fortunately, has a pretty significant uh, following on social media platforms. Yeah. I mean, and we, we have developed our own in-house content operation. And so when we go out to these rural areas, when we're in urban areas, when we're at college campuses, we're interviewing and developing our own content, interviewing people, uh, capturing, you know, the energy that's on the ground and deploying that on all of our platforms. Um, and then we're also using TikTok, um, you know, to the extent we can, I think, that's a difficult platform, I think, for politicians to to be on. But one thing that we are doing, um, you know, we're taking a look when we go into these areas at who are those influencers um, in right. these particular markets. So who's who has the biggest following on TikTok and Instagram and that sort of thing in in San Antonio, for example, when we're there, right. we're reaching out to those people, trying to get them engaged to promote our events or promote our content. And so we're trying to leverage these influencers um, on on these social media platforms because they have their own unique audiences. They speak to people in different ways and they have right. um, people who just aren't normally um, you know, engaged in politics on those platforms that we we want to try to leverage and, and, and connect to. And so because Beto has, you know, this sort of power of, of his own celebrity um, and we have these people, you know, celebrities and others uh, and influence who want to help. We've been trying to maximize that as we possibly can and leverage that to speak to to voters, um, you know, especially young voters. That's super smart to think about it down to the to local level. Who's got the biggest audience and, and who can become your your voice? Because, you know, I think no matter Beto's an incredibly skilled po politician, there's always a degree of propaganda, right? When it comes through a campaign or like, but when when average people are doing it, it, it reaches folks and is effective. So I'm curious, Nick, last question. You've been super generous with your time. You know, you mentioned how you kind of keep a mental model of Texas in your head. You obviously have your vote goal model too. I always try and remind people like to get to your vote goal, you know, it's never one thing. It's a whole bunch of things <laughs> that mm -hmm. somehow have to hang together. And if one piece of it, you know, is deficient, the whole thing crumbles, right? So you mentioned your need to get 60% of the Latino vote. You know, you mentioned, you know, what you're trying to do in suburban areas, hold down the margin uh, of Abbott in, in some rural and exurban places. Which of those are you most, and, and I'm not asking you to give away any state secrets, but like, as you think about, like, you probably have eight or 10 different inputs, right? Okay, we need all these things to happen to win. You know, black turnout in Harris County, you know, you just go on and on. Which of those are you most confident you're going to hit your numbers and maybe exceed it? And where are you not? And where are you most concerned or where are you devoting the most time and resources? Yeah, really good question. So I think, you know, we're, we're, we have been spending a lot of time and energy engaging in Latino communities. And, and I'm feeling pretty good about that sort of level of engagement. Beto's from the border. He knows how to speak to those yeah. communities, especially on the border. 
Um, I think with African-Americans, um, you know, there's still a little bit of work to do. It's about 12% of the vote share and we need a 90% of, of that population mm -hmm. to turn out for us. So, you know, those, those are always, um, those communities uh, are, are ones that we want to continue to focus in on. I think urban areas, um, there has been a lot of um, focus. And I think this is where the national trends are feeding in on, on the economy. But crime and and immigration mm -hmm. are really driving um, the narrative down in Texas as well, I think, around the country, too. And so, you know, uh, we we we, we want to make sure that we can pierce through that um, and make sure that people understand that they're that that, um, you know, those the, while those issues are important uh, and uh, and and significant, it's Abbott who's been in charge. Uh, exactly. Abbott is the reason for those things. And so. Um, trying to leverage that and speak to people, you know, while they're focused on those issues and make sure that people understand who really is the driver of those things. I think that's the thing that where I feel like we have the, the, the biggest challenge and we need to continue to keep prosecuting the case um, and make sure that those suburban women that we talked about, the people uh, in these urban areas understand that, um, you know, that in particular. So I think that's where we need to continue to focus and, and we'll be doubling down on over the, you know, through the end of this, this race. Well, I, I know our listeners will love that aggression. I think both, you know, in terms of how you talked about the Abbott tax and prosecuting the economy and then on crime, this is what Democrats have to do. We are starting to see more Democrats, obviously, you know, we need to talk about what we're for, but also like, give me a break with these guys <laughs> who are out there basically talking about crime where they're presiding you know, governors and, and even some, 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 you know, Republican mayors over, you know, places that have had huge spikes in crime. I think sometimes Democrats get in the, where we're like, well, the crime's not up. Like that's not a conversation that's, you know, you can have it in the New York times editorial boardroom, <laughs> but if, if, if voters are concerned about it, then you got to win that argument, right? It's yes, like sir. any other one. Uh, and the truth is, I think we've been way too uh, soft on the Republicans because it's obviously, obviously their positions on guns, you know, not focus on rehabilitation, shortchanging education, all that leads into it. But so that, that's kind of the really important from a policy standpoint. And, but it's also like, you know, you want to talk about crime in Texas? Okay, let's talk to Governor Abbott, who's in charge of it, right? That's right. So that's right. I, I, I you no, know, yeah, you're, you're, that's totally <laughs> right. I mean, these people, especially Abbott, has been in charge for you no. Know, he's he's seeking a third term, eight years, and crime has gone up under his watch. He keeps talking about Biden and the border, but he's been governor, you know, and yeah. his stunts have exacerbated, um, uh, you know, the 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 the, the challenges at the border. And so, you know, again, like they need to be held accountable for this stuff. And, 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 and you're right. I think sometimes we are just sort of mealy mouth or too soft or afraid to talk about it. And at the end of the day, people want to just feel safe uh, and secure. And that's usually one of the number one things, just black people, white people, <laughs> Latinos, whoever, everyone just wants to feel comfortable and safe in their homes. And we need to make sure that Demo they understand that Democrats are the people that, that, that can actually make that happen. Right. And, and right. not the Republicans. So that's exactly yeah. right. It's exactly all right. Well, Nick, uh, thanks for what you're doing for Veto for the country, uh, trying to lead this. Uh, well, you're not trying to. You are leading this incredibly important race, and you guys are doing some really innovative things down there. Built up a huge field operation, uh, as you said, perhaps the largest one we've ever seen in a statewide race. So, congrats on all that, and and best of luck here in the closing few days. Thank you so much, David. Really appreciate it.